Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money for your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. A sexual sexual sadist has intense fantasies and or performs acts because he desires complete sexual, physical, emotional, or psychological domination over another person. Sexual sadism may be either physical or psychological in nature. Sadistic, Sadistic acts range from behaviors that do not physically harm another, although it may be humiliating to the person such as being urinated or defecated on, to criminal violence and potentially deadly behavior. The essential feature of sexual sadism is not on the feeling of sexual excitement resulting from the infliction of true pain on the victim, but rather it is from witnessing his or her suffering. In extreme cases, sexual sadism can lead to serious injury or death. The true sexual sadist is cruel, and his actions are not wanted by the victim. For example, spanking only involves minimal pain, whereas whipping, shocking, burning, beating, stabbing, strangling, raping, mutilation, and murder indicate torture and suffering. Restraint between adults is very different than imprisonment in a cage shackled with chains. Major sadism, however, is not consensual and can involve injury and death. The sadist wants not only complete control and compliance, he wants his victim to feel fear. It is this fear that turns him on. Sexual sadists tend to relate to people in terms of power versus affection. In general, they commit more violent crimes than other offenders and are more aggressive. This corresponds with the psychopathy they display. Psychopaths are predatory. They like the ability to feel empathy or remorse. They plan and they rehearse. Psychopaths are also traditionally charming and charismatic. The psychopathic sexual sadist usually has no problem finding a partner or several accomplices to his crimes if he so desires. There are several types of rapists ranging anywhere from the opportunistic to the sexually sadistic to the gang rapists. The anger... The anger excitation rapist, also referred to as a sexually sadistic rapist, is the most dangerous. These sadistic rapists actually despise women, considering them bitches, sluts, and whores. He sees complete control of this enemy. He has a plan that he knows how to execute and will do it over and over for as long as he can get away with it. The torture will intensify if he has time. He rehearses every detail, and he has all the necessary equipment to play out his fantasies. July 22nd, 1972, Martin County, Florida. 
a sheriff's deputy on patrol is flagged down by two hysterical young women. Their handcuffs are cuffed behind their their hands are cuffed behind their backs and cloth gags around their necks. In fear for their lives, the two tell an almost unbelievable tale. Nancy Trotter, 17, and Paula Wells, 18, tell police they've been hitchhiking to the beach the day before. A common enough practice. Martin County was home to lots of beautiful beaches, and its small town atmosphere meant there was a little crime to worry about. So when Deputy Gerard Schaefer pulled over, they thought nothing of it. However, Schaefer lectured them that hitchhiking was illegal in Martin County, which it wasn't. He drove them home and told the girls he'd come pick them up the next day to give them a ride. The next day, Schaefer kept his word and arrived to pick the girls up. Only this time, he was driving in an unmarked car and was out of uniform, saying he was off-duty. The girls got in his car and drove, and they drove away. Schaefer took them to a remote wooded area off Hutchinson Island, saying he wanted to show them an old Spanish fort. On the way, he pulled his gun on them, then cuffed both girls, gagged them, and forced them to walk to a particular area with a large mangrove tree. There he tied nooses around the girl's neck, placing them from a branch, so that they were forced to stand on tiptoe, balancing on the slippery roots, or else they would hang. If one of these girls had tripped and fallen on their roots, their necks would have snapped instantly. There, Schaefer tortured them and raped them, he told them to decide which of them he should kill. But suddenly, Schaefer was called away by police dispatchers. He told the girls he would be back to finish the job and left. Somewhere while he was gone, Trotter and Wells were able to free themselves from their nooses and flee. At about the same time the girls were giving their statement, Martin County Sheriff Robert Crowder received a call from Schaefer. He began by saying he'd done something foolish and that Crowder would be mad at him. He explained that he picked up Trotter and Wells hitchhiking and in order to scare them away from such a dangerous practice, had taken them into the woods, tied them up, and threatened to sell them into sexual slavery. However, he'd gotten away, called away on the radio, and still left the girls tied up. He just returned, he explained, and found them gone. Crowder told Schaefer to come into the station. Once there, Crowder fired him and had him arrested. Schaefer was charged with false imprisonment and two counts of aggravated assault. However, at his arraignment, he was given a plea deal. In exchange for pleading guilty to one count of aggravated assault, he would get a sentence of only one year in jail and three years probation. He accepted the deal with, and also with the request to extend his bond for another six months so he could help his wife relocate relocates to Fort Lauderdale. His request was granted. Before this, Schaefer had been an officer in the nearby Wilton Manors Police Department. And his informer employee gave him glowing references. 
He'd even earn accommodation from his role in a drug bust. Crowder himself thought the young man, only 26, seemed well-spoken, trustworthy, and apple-cheeks. What Crowder didn't know was that Schaefer had been fired from Wilson Manor's police department not long after earning that commendation. The reason why varied. His former police chief, Bernard Scott, said it was because he didn't have an ounce of common sense. But ex-FBI agent and perennial criminal, criminal profiler Robert, Le- Robert Ressler said Schaefer was pulling over women for traffic violations, then using the department's computer system to obtain their personal information so he could call them to ask them out on dates. His tenure at the Wilden Manors Police Department was only the latest in a long string of jobs Schaefer couldn't seem to keep. But before all this, we have to go back to the beginning of Gerard Schaefer's life. He started to experiment with bondage and sadomasochism around age 12. He told a psychiatrist that he'd tie himself up to a tree and get sexually excited and then hurt himself. He would also masturbate and fantasize about hurting other people, especially women. He also started wearing women's panties. At 14 years old, Schaefer had a girlfriend named Cindy. The relationship of three years was sordid and bizarre. He would make her take part in a role-play fantasies in which he tore her clothes and raped her. In 1963, she broke up with him. But having authority over people was exactly what Schaefer wanted. Before he was hired at Wilton Manors, he had applied to several police departments, including Broward County, but was rejected because he failed the psychological exam. After 1966, he tried to join the peace priesthood and was turned away by St. John's Seminary because they claimed he did not have enough faith. He was so enraged, he just quit the Catholic religion. On October 2, 1966, Nancy Lechner, age 20, and Pamela Terre, age 21, had joined their boyfriends at Alexander Springs Park in the Ocala National Forest. While their boyfriends were diving, the girls decided to walk the park's national trail. Later, a witness reported to have seen the two girls walking along the trail, the trail with an unidentified male falling close behind them. No one had seen them since. Investigators determined that the girls were beginning to most likely take from the park and kill. Their boyfriends were suspect in the beginning but no evidence pointed to them being responsible for the disappearance of either girl. His love life was no better. In high school, he dated the moment then and got engaged to Sandra London, but his odd behavior troubled her. A neighbor girl, Lee Hanline, often undressed with her bedroom curtains open. The fact that he could see her undressing infuriated Schaefer. He called her a whore. And told London, I'm going to put a stop to that. In September 1969, Hainline went missing. Lee married Charles Bonadise only a month before, and the relationship was oftentimes rocky. When Lee announced that her childhood neighbor and sometimes tennis partner had offered a $20,000 salary to join the CIA, Charles laughed and thought it was ridiculous. Then on September 8th, he came home to find a note from Lay saying she sent Lee saying she had gone to Miami to speak with Schaefer about the job. When Lee's brother called Schaefer to ask if he had seen Lee, he told, was told a bizarre story. 
Schaefer described how Lee had called him and asked for a ride to the airport because she was flying to Cincinnati, Ohio. She wasn't sure of the departure time, so he would call him back with the info. He had never heard from her. Lee's car was found parked in a Fort Lauderdale parking lot. He later tried to become a teacher. Both of his attempts ended with in him being dismissed due to inappropriate behavior, trying to force his own political ideas on students. He would also, from what I could find, he would also try and make really horrible remarks about a lot of the female students there and try and ask them out. In fact, his behavior was so egregious that one supervisor stated he'd better never let me near if better never let me hear of his trying to get a job with any authority over other people or I'd do anything I could to prevent it. Three months after Leigh Bonadis disappeared, when Schaefer was employed as the intern slash student teacher at Plantation High School, a beautiful 22-year-old cocktail waitress, Carmen Candy Halleck, called her sister-in-law on December 18, 1969, to tell her she had an appointment with a male teacher from a local junior college that evening. The unidentified teacher claimed to also have done undercover work for the government and could possibly have an, um, an employment opportunity for Carmen, which would include international travel and a high salary. Carmen told her sister-in-law that she purchased a pair of black little high heels and planned to wear a black cocktail dress with those heels to the meeting. Not hearing from Carmen since her telephone conversation on the 18th, her sister-in-law went to check Carmen's apartment on Christmas Day. Her car keys, driver's license, and vehicle registration went missing. Also absent were the black cocktail dress and black high heel shoes. Her car was later found abandoned in a parking lot, but Carmen was nowhere to be found. Her skeletal remains were finally discovered almost 10 years later, in January 1978 in Boca Raton, Florida, in the subdivision of Boca del Mar, which was under construction at the time. On December 29, 1969, Peggy Rand 9 and Wendy Stevenson 8 vanished from Pompano Beach, Florida. A family friend had decided to take Peggy to the beach that day while Wendy came with her uncle. The girls attended Palmview Elementary School but didn't know each other very well before that day. It was just a chance meeting at the beach for the two little girls. Around 1 p.m., the girls decided to walk to the parking lot to buy an ice cream. The last person to see Peggy and Wendy was a store clerk who identified the girls, the two girls from photographs, saying he had seen a strange man buying ice cream cones for the girls. The stranger was described as a white man, six feet tall, and wearing about 200 pounds weighing about 200 pounds in his 20s, with sandy-colored hair, gray eyes, and a humped nose. Although Wendy was known to be a good swimmer, authorities initially believed the girls drowned, but nobody saw either of them in any distress in that water, in the water that day. Their bodies have never been found. Peggy was last seen wearing a pink baby doll bikini, and Wendy had a blue and white checkered bikini. Once when London and Schaefer were sitting on a beach together, he confessed that sometimes he had the urge to kill women. London later broke off the engagements. While he was a student at Florida Atlantic University, Schaefer married Martha Fogg, but the marriage only lasted a little over a year before Mary's Martha sued 
for divorce on the grounds of extreme cruelty. Martha's accusations only hinted at the depths of Shaper's deeply disturbed fantasy life. He had be he began being obsessed with women's underwear at a young age, sewing them and wearing them to get sexually aroused. He then began peeping in women's windows as well. It wasn't long before his odd behaviors escalated to violence. He began killing animals he would find in the woods. He would later admit to beheading cows and having sex with the carcasses. Later, he would go into the woods to be alone, where he would wear the stolen underwear, tie himself up to a tree with a noose, and hurt himself while masturbating. After he decided that if he couldn't be a priest or a teacher, he would be a policeman. He was rejected by several departments and was finally accepted by the Wilson Manors Police Department. On January 5, 1972, Belinda Hutchinson's, a 22-year-old cocktail waitress who had a history of arrest for prostitution, gone to a car with a stranger who drove a blue Datsun. Her husband, who was a drug addict, later told police that Belinda always flaunted her extramarital affairs and led her own lifestyle. Her husband and two-year-old daughter never saw her again. Belinda was known to have Schaefer while he was attending the police academy. Deborah Sue Lowe, age 13, was last seen on the morning of February 29, 1972, walking to Rickards Middle School in Pompano Beach, Florida. It was about a mile long walk from her home to school. She never arrived and has not been seen, seen or heard from since. Her school books were found in a trash can a block from her home. It was first believed by authorities that Deborah ran away from home to return to Palestine, West Virginia, from which her family had just moved. But her family refused to believe she had run away. Without any prior history of such behavior, Gerard Schaefer worked with Deborah's father and visited her family's home numerous times, as well as the family visiting Schaefer's home for cookouts on a few occasions. Deborah or her remains have never been found, and she is still considered a missing person, but her family believes she is a victim of Schaefer's. In April 1972, one month after receiving a commendation for a drug deal, drug bust, Schaefer was fired. The reasons given vary. According to the chief, it was because he didn't have an ounce of sense. And according to an FBI source, it was due to him running female traffic violators through the computer department's computer in order to obtain their personal information and calling them for dates. Ellis Lena Farmer and Mary Alice Briscolini, both age 14, disappeared from Pompano Beach, Florida, on October 23, 1972, Elise was reported missing the next day, while Mary's family waited another week, thinking she had just run away from home. Elise's skeletal remains were found on January 17, 1973, at a construction site near Plantation High School. On February 15, about 200 yards away, Mary's remains were also found. Both girls were also identified via dental records. On January 8, 1973, just seven days before Schaefer started serving his sentence, two unlucky hitchhikers from Iowa, Colette Goodenough and Barbara Ann Wilcox, both age 19, left Biloxi, Mississippi, thumbing their way to Florida. No one saw or heard from them again. On April 1, 1973, Hutchinson Island, Florida, 
Some men out picking up cans in the woods came upon a gruesome scene. Human body parts, badly decomposed and scattered beneath the tree. When Martin County Sheriff's deputies arrive on the scene, they instantly recognize it as the same site where Trotter and Wells had been abducted and assaulted. Thanks to the human weather and its abundant wildlife, the bodies were too badly decomposed to determine a time of death with any accuracy. But there was plenty of evidence of foul play. Their arms were still bound with rags, and their bones had multiple knife marks on them. One victim had a bullet hole in her jaw. Detectives also found wear marks on a nearby tree limb, like that left by a rope. An autopsy was determined that their bodies had been hacked to pieces, then buried in a shallow grave. Animals had subsequently dug them up and scavenged their remains. Dental records will identify these victims as 17-year-old Susan and 16-year-old Georgia Jessup, who had 17-year-old Susan Place and 16-year-old Georgia Jessup, who had gone missing from Fort Lauderdale in September of this previous year, while Schaefer was still out on bonds. Susan Place's mother, Lucille, had reported the girls missing after they had left with an older man called himself Jerry Shepard. He was driving a blue-green Datsun, and Lucille had even jotted down his license plate number. Investigators wouldn't follow up on this lead, which led straight to Schaefer until March of 1973, just weeks before the girls' remains were found. Lucille, seeing as how the police weren't doing much to find her daughter and her friend, decided to do some investigating herself. She went through her daughter's things and found a letter from Susan to Jerry Shepard, which returned to sender. So Lucille went to the address, an apartment in Stewart, Florida, about 70 miles away. There she met Schaefer's wife, Teresa. Teresa told Lucille that there was no Jerry Shepard living there, only herself and her husband, Gerard Schaefer. And Gerard, she had told Lucille, was in jail for kidnapping and assaulting two teenagers last year on South Hutchinson Island. Lucille gave this information to the police, which was enough for them to get a warrant to search not only the home he shared with Teresa, but also Schaefer's mother's home, where he had stored some of his belongings after his arrest. But it was Schaefer's mother's house where investigators found the most damning evidence. Inside his streamer trunk, they had found a stash of women's things, jewelry, keepsakes, and even IDs. Also, hundreds of pages of writing and sketches depicting mutilation and murders of young women, newspaper clippings, and other items. One of these items was a locket inscribed with the name Lee. It, along with other items, would be identified as belonging to Lee Hanline, his former neighbor who had gone missing in 1969. Newspaper clippings about her disappearance, but no charges were filed when her skeletal remains were finally recovered in 1978. The sash also included the IDs of missing 19-year-old hitchhikers, Colette Goodenough and Barbara Wilcox, the two girls who had been last seen on January 8, 1973, a week before Schaefer was sent to assault to jail for the assault on Trotter and Wells. In all, the other items in the trunk would be traced to a total of 38 women, all missing 
or murdered, going back to 1966. Besides a trunk full of keepsakes, police also found hundreds of hundreds of pages of Schaefer's writing, stories of abduction, torture, rape, murder, necrophilia, and cannibalism. So detailed and realistic, people believe they were thinly veiled confession. So the most common theme in his writings were his talks about nooses, tying women up, and torturing them. Despite the violence of the attacks on Trotter and Wells, Schaefer was set to be released in only six months' time due to his good behavior, so police had to indict him quickly. Though the evidence in his room pointed to dozens of victims, they had only recovered four bodies, those of Place and Jessup, as well as those of 14-year-old Mary Briscolonia and 13-year-old Elsie Farmer, whose decapitated skeletons had been found in early 1973. Jewelry in Schaefer's trunk have been traced to Briscolona and Farmer, who vanished from Broward County in October 1972. But because of their advanced state of decomp, no cause of death could be determined, so no charges were filed. The girls' teeth had been pulled and scattered around their grave sites, a, pre- a precaution investigators said Schaefer took because they knew he would make him identifying the bodies more difficult. A former investigator with the Martin County State's Attorney's Office who worked on the Oakland Park case said, Schaefer never admitted to killing anyone to me, but the stuff he put in his writings, the details of what we found at the crime scene were in his stories. Schaefer's writings talked about finding a spot to bury the women and having them stand on an orange crate while he bound them. He strangled them, raped them, buried them, and then dig them up again to rape them again. Schaefer maintained the writings were fiction, though. His wife, Teresa Schaefer, made her one and only prison visit on November 17, 1973, to serve Gerard with divorce papers. She later married Elton Schwartz, the public defender who represented him. Among the news clips found in the trunk, there is one which referred to the February 1969 disappearance of waitress Carmen Halleck, a shamrock pin which belonged to her, was found in Schaefer's hoard, along with a gold-filled tooth identified by Halleck's dentist, but once again, no charges were filed. Thankfully, police did have enough to charge her for the murders of Place and Jessup. He was indicted on May, 3rd, May 1973 and held without bond pending trial. In October that year, he was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder and given two like substances to be served concurrently. He appealed his case numerous times, but was rejected each time. During his time, he continued to write his graphically violent stories, and he would read them aloud to the other inmates. They were so brutal and disgusting, even many hardened criminals didn't want to listen to them. Meanwhile, on the outside, police were linking him to more victims. Photographs of the items found in his stash were circulated among missing persons departments throughout the state and across the country, all before the internet. Slowly, the names of dozens of missing women and girls were uncovered and connected to Schaefer. Only a few of these girls and women were ever found. Goodenough and Wilcox's remains were found in 1977, but like the others, they were so decomposed, no cause of death could be determined. The following year, Lee Hainline's skull was found with multiple bullet holes in it. 
However, there wasn't enough to charge him with any of these murders because all of this evidence is extremely circumstantial. And Schaefer wasn't, wouldn't confess. He continued to maintain his innocence, providing excuses for every victim's an item in his possession. It seemed as if Schaefer would never face justice for his killings. Then, in 1990, Schaefer's old girlfriend, Sandra London, now a crime writer, reached out to him. They began corresponding, and London helped him publish his stories and drawings. Flexed into two volumes called Killer Fiction and Beyond Killer Fiction. While he was publicly proclaiming his innocence and threatening to sue anyone who called him a serial killer, he was writing to London that his stories were confessions and that he had killed somewhere between 80 to 110 women and girls. Realizing what she had, she shared those letters with the police, who reopened investigations into the disappearances of Cameron Halleck. Lee Hanline, and Benda Belinda Hutchinson's. All three had ties to Schaefer. Besides Hanline being a neighbor he vowed to put a stop to, Halleck and Hutchinson's had dated him. All three had items found in Schaefer's stash, including Halleck's gold tooth. Sorry. I lost my place there for a second. When London confronted Schaefer about his denial of the very crimes he bragged to her about, he flew into rage and threatened her life multiple times. London wisely cut off all contacts. One of Schaefer's biggest hobbies behind bars was writing macabre stories, some of which were suspected of being real counts of murders he committed, and others were grisly fantasies. In one simple story, Tiled whores, he recounts hanging a prostitute and having sex with her corpse. He writes about doing doubles, in which he states it is far more difficult than doing singles, but it puts me in a position to have twice as much fun. There can be some lively discussions about which of the victims we killed first. A series of stories was about a rogue cop who moonlights as a serial killer targeting pre prostitutes. In his writing, Schaefer claimed to have started murdering women as early as 1965, when he was 19. Schaefer insisted that the stories were art, and police, police and prosecutors described them as thinly veiled descriptions of actual crimes. A passage from the book reads, In 1973, I sat down and drew a list of my own. As I recall, my list was just over 80. The next day, give him more time to reflect. Shaver went on. I'm not claiming a huge number. I would say it runs between 80 and 110. But over eight years and three continents, one in horror drowns in her own vomit, watching me disembowel her girlfriend. I'm not sure that counts as a valid kill. Did the pregnant one count as two kills? It can get confusing. So police scheduled an interview with Schaefer regarding three women in December 1995 on a Monday, but Schaefer would never answer their questions. That Friday, in a dispute obscenely overriding, obscenely overriding his, on his federal inmates, fellow inmate Vincent Riviera stabbed Schaefer to death. Schaefer had over 40 stab wounds to his eyes, 
and his throat had been cut from ear to ear. His death was so bloody and so violent, it might have been a good story in his next book, had he lived to write about it. <laughs>